You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we meet a global leader with a deep understanding of the need for health equity. Following that, an in-depth discussion with an amazing tech expert on digital transformation in the healthcare ecosystem. And heads up, both of these guests today will be speakers at NCQA's annual Quality Talks event, May 3rd, 2023, in Washington, D.C., To hear them and to network with our guests, register today at qualitytalks.org. Now, before we roll into interviews, a brief happy announcement. Inside Healthcare, a podcast by NCQA, has been declared a gold winner in the 2023 Hermes Creative Awards. This international competition for creative professionals celebrates outstanding work in creative industries, focusing on the concept, writing, and design of traditional and emerging media, This show won in the category of electronic, social, and interactive media. We're so excited for our continued success, and we commend you, our listeners, for your continued support. Looking forward to more accolades in the future. But first, I usually don't do this, but I'd like to introduce our first distinguished guest, Dr. Garth Graham, by walking you down his career path in chronological order. First, Dr. Garth Graham is a cardiologist, researcher, and public health expert. He's dedicated his life to improving health equity and shining a light on the need for improved data gathering and effective research into social determinants of health. He worked in various roles in his eight years with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, including a stint as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Minority Health. Out of HHS, Dr. Graham was then Assistant Dean for Health Policy and Chief of Health Services Research in the Department of Medicine at the University of Florida School of Medicine. Following that, he spent six years with Aetna, including as President of the Aetna Foundation and VP for Community Health, and then came two years as Chief Community Health Officer for CVS Health. If you went to a CVS between 2018 and 2020 to get a COVID test, Dr. Graham was the person who ran the whole program, and he made sure to provide testing and vaccinations to as many underserved communities as possible. Then in 2021, he took on his current role, Managing Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health at Google, YouTube, and Google Health. Yes, I'm leaving out a bunch of stuff. Dr. Graham sits on many boards. He holds many chairs, and he might be the busiest guest I've ever had. We're lucky to have him. But then again, if you want to catch him in person, you absolutely can. Just register today for NCQA's 2023 Quality Talks event. He'll be there, and while you're listening now to this show, go ahead and click over and go sign up. Now, our conversation in this episode ranged from global health issues to community-level concerns 
from health equity to tech solutions for care delivery. But to begin with, I simply asked him this, what do you do for a living? Here's my talk with Dr. Garth Graham. At Google, I am in charge of our healthcare effort, particularly on YouTube. And our role is really to work with both um, uh, uh, the product and engineering teams on, on the inside, um, uh, um, on the Google side, and also to work with uh, partners um, and organizations and government entities um, across the world, really, to really get quality health information out at scale. So, you know, um, typically what we do is um, we, we are really right now targeting this concept of information quality and how do we get quality health information out to um, individuals, um, users, communities, and, you know, th defining that concept really well on the macro level, but also making sure that when people come to surfaces and they search for a particular health question or a health concern, they get quality information that um, is um, engaging um, and gets to, um, to again, you know, point them in the right direction in terms of the next step on their health journey. And it's really this overall concept, David, that, um, uh, you know, information, you know, drives health outcomes. And we know that people, you know, across the world come to our surfaces with those health questions. And um, for instance, you know, 2 billion people, um, you know, this month will, will use YouTube. I would say that's, you know, like a third of the world's population. Um, so these are not small numbers. Um, so it's, it's, it's impactful. Um, so we have to be, um, uh, you know, we, we have to be thoughtful um, and strategic um, on how we um, uh, make sure that we're driving people in the right direction. I know, at least in the United States, and at least for the interviews that I've done <laughs> recently, we're trying to, or through the pandemic, people have been encouraged not to seek uh, medical care, not to go to a brick and mortar hospital or an ER because they were overwhelmed, they were flooded, there weren't enough beds. And so they were encouraged not, not to ignore what was going on with them, but to seek self-care. And so one of the first things people would do is go online and do searches. So it's good to know that people actually are following up and you know the onus is on them to take responsibility for their health. But I'm sure that must have been that must lead to what what you're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, certainly in the pandemic and beyond, we saw huge um, surges in the kind of questions and journeys that people were taking, um, particularly because health was taking a more center stage. Um, you know, globally. So there were more health-related questions um, that people were asking. And, you know, quite frankly, that's how you know that this particular um, um, way of engaging um, uh, community is important because people are seeking information and looking for the kinds of things that will then lead them to, to, to make the next um, uh, best decision. I often say, you know, gone are the days of billboards, flyers, uh, printouts, um, you know, that, that's not how people um, um, process information of any kind anymore. And it's the same for health. People want uh, information as a part of their overall journey. And so really this idea of information and information quality and how we kind of get there um, is not just, a, you know, something in the future. It's, um, you know, it's, it's exactly what's happening now on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute um, journey that people are on, especially around their own healthcare. So let's hear about your job. Uh, we've, on the show, we've heard from 
state leaders, uh, uh, leaders on the federal level, leaders of providers who are on the state level. Uh, we've heard from state legislature representatives as well, representation. And um, but as a global leader uh, and as a way of either inspiring or informing um, others who are listening to the show, tell me about what it means to be a global leader in, in the healthcare realm. Oh, um, who are your yeah. partners and how, and where did mm -hmm. your role come from? Uh, how did it develop? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think my role evolved from um, just the fact that, um, um, you know, we, we saw this need that people had um, for health information and they were going to Google surfaces, they were going to YouTube and they were um, engaging in health information. And so um, that, that was the kind of the genesis for our overall team. Um, for me, um, quite frankly, this was just been an amazing opportunity. You know, I'd worked at the national level before, um, particularly on community health and health disparities. But to, you know, to understand the nuances about what global um, uh, health and public health looks like was, has been fascinating. You know, we reach people, um, um, you know, we're launching projects um, and products in Indonesia, the UK, France, Brazil, um, you know, and, um, in a couple of days, we're going to do a, a big launch in, in Mexico. Um, and that's kind of, um, um, you know, how the team operates in terms of uh, making sure you're, meet, you're meeting the needs of the global community. What's been interesting to me um, in this particular role is seeing both the similarities and the differences um, in terms of what we face domestically. Across the world, I would say this concept of um, determinants of health is very real. Um, it is the same in Sao Paulo as it is in the Bronx. Um, as it is in Kyoto, Japan. I mean, all of these concepts feed into health outcomes and that's where information plays an important role. What's different is again, the cultural nuances and the way people approach healthcare. Uh, but in many ways, the challenges um, uh, point back to this idea of how do you um, get and engage people in genuine personalized healthcare. What does that mean? It means we often throw that word around in the healthcare ecosystem a lot without um, making sure that we're meeting individual people where they are in their health journey. And that's where a more personalized um, concept around healthcare really comes into play. I, you know, if we're talking about health equity, the most effective strategy that at least I've, I've discussed with guests on the show um, always comes down to being able to work on a community level. That mm -hmm. policy that's established and and like you're saying, the the pamphlets and the information that's being sent to communities from a state level or from a corporate level, that's not effective. It's it's just not going to to make the change that really needs to be made unless it's communicated to organizations that are community based or or uh, people on the ground in their neighborhoods. Uh, so how do you trickle down the the efforts, the outcomes yeah. that you're trying to to have, how do you uh, communicate those and get them all the way down to community levels? Yeah, but first thing, you know, you're exactly right. The concept of healthcare is not only local, it's personal. Um, and so, you know, the more um, individualized and the more you reach kind of, again, you know, people, um, you know, where they are is important. That's kind of the essence of our overall strategy and effort. So, you know, we really take into account, again, um, how are people on um, an individual level receiving information? Um, and then, you know, what are the kinds of things that they're looking for as they engage in that journey? So I'll, I'll give you an, a perfect example um, as the way I kind of often think about like a user journey. You know, you go into your doctor, 
your doctor gives you a diagnosis, you know, they, spend, they may spend 15 minutes giving you that diagnosis, um, something more serious, maybe longer. And then you go, you walk out, you walk out there and then you wake up in the middle of the night, you have questions. You have questions, um, you're not gonna necessarily call your clinician at 2 a.m. to say, well, I had a question that I forgot to ask you. What happens is that people then, you, I, we all do this, you go on a journey where um, you digitally start to try to find answers. You look, you, 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 you read, and then, you know, an hour instance, you go to the video and you start to learn about uh, other people's experiences or more about this information. That kind of informs your next best step uh, when you wake up in the morning. Um, and so for us, it's really about this personal journey. And in fact, one of the product, one of the features that we created on our platform um, was this concept of personal stories, um, where we elevated um, stories that different um, people were saying across across the country, um, quite frankly, um, and subsequently across the world um, around their health conditions. And that concept, um, uh, David, was particularly compelling because um, personal stories, engagement, people look for that sense of community, especially when they're um, um, uh, you know going through um, a challenging time. So. Um, you know, there's there's so many different aspects of healthcare, um, but it's really important that it is uh, means something to the person receiving it, and that means, as I said before, it's both personal, it's both local, um, and that's where we really start to get um, the crux of of healthcare change and healthcare delivery. Right. This idea starts feeding into the idea of patient-centered care, yep. patient-centered outcomes. That's in a way. That's what you were describing, and it's a yeah. it's a paradigm that um, that we talk about where uh, it it's not effective anymore to have a patient come in and the doctor checks them out, sees a couple of symptoms, comes up with a diagnosis, and then sort of dictates frontally, you know, you should be doing this and this and this. And then when the person leaves, there's there's no follow up. Um, so if you wanted to speak to to that in terms of patient centered, patient valued uh, healthcare. Yeah, I mean, David, quite frankly, that's why I took this role. Um, you know, um, I have been obsessed about two, two aspects. One is this idea of, again, um, um, determinants, um, patient-related, patient-centered care, and what, what are the kind of things that drive individual communities. And, and also one of the things I'm also interested in is how do you take that to scale? And so for, for our team, this idea of health information and how um, individual people receive it, I was particularly important. You know, if you think about, let me just throw out one stat. <clears throat> um, when in the um, uh, when you get a diagnosis of, of hypertension, um, you know, only half of a, half of the people who get an initial diagnosis of hypertension um, start taking the medication or even filling the script. Right. So immediately you have disengagement right at that moment of of diagnosis because people aren't sure they, what to do, they, you, know, you give them a script, but they're not sure they understand you. you know, we know that engaging um, somebody in communication um, is more likely that they would fill the script and actually start taking the medication. And so this idea of information, communication, and engagement is really central to all of the other tenants we have in healthcare. Um, and so we think about you know, um, patient-centered care, um, sometimes as a ecosystem concept, when it is more about an individual person, um, you know, how does that person culturally get information to understand? So our, our team, you know, we've been working with 
um, um, a number of both institutions, government, um, uh, the National Health Service in the UK, um, working with um, uh, uh, you know um, health um, uh, uh, LHA local health authorities across the world, including here um, in in the US, um, and hospitals and clinicians, and it's all part of how do you get all of these folks engaged in an information ecosystem that delivers um, information to patients in the way that they want to receive it. I want to talk about health equity now, but I wanted to ask you about the not the concept of health equity, but about how policy is being uh, incorporated into all different kinds of companies uh, around the world, uh, companies that are establishing equity offices and, and uh, equity roles, uh, supervisory and leadership equity roles um, uh, all, all across the spectrum. So your job, um, would you consider that to be an equity related role? Sure. Um, I mean, in the, in the context that we are trying to make sure that that, that communities across the world get equity, get equitable health information. So certainly I would say equity is a part of what we're doing. So um, tell me about your past experiences as well and how what you've observed in what I was just talking about, about uh, equity yeah. and DEI policy being established, firmly being baked into other corporate policies and various healthcare-related uh, companies and, and NGOs, uh, and about the um, gradual wave of establishment of roles, of jobs, of offices within these companies that are focused on uh, equity issues. Yeah, so David, earlier on in my career, I was the director of the Office of Minority Health at the federal level, um, so nationally for minority health across country. I'd, we worked a lot to establish infrastructure at state offices of minority health. So, you know, you have the Maryland Office of Minority Health, which would deal with minority health for the state of Maryland, Florida, you know, similar places where we would work with um, those offices and to um, establish new ones. So this is a topic that is both uh, familiar, but near and dear to my heart in terms of, of how of infrastructure um, and, and, and how it's done um, in, a, in an appropriate way. I would say whether it's at the state level, local government, because you have local um, government um, that uh, offices of minority health, or you have corporate infrastructure, you have a chief health equity officer, um, or um, or any of those similar kinds of infrastructure. The core to that is empowerment, and what I mean when I say that is that um, the individuals, um, the structure of the office has to be empowered to be able to have impact and effect. Um, you know, many times or sometimes you see the creation of infrastructure, um, but not they're not given the um, either the funding um, or the bandwidth um, or the teeth to be able to then move the organization forward. And so for me, um, and this was really important when we were establishing offices of minority health again, both at the federal and the state level, you always started with, you know, what are the core tenants of um, of success, and then what is the infrastructure and the the teeth that needs to be put in place to get there? I do think um, um, there are some amazing chief health equity officers right now who are doing uh, I would say models of the role. Um, uh, for instance, the chief health equity officer at Humana, um, and the way she is able to kind of structure that role um, is another example is an example of of of, of both empowerment and effectiveness. So I would say that starting off with empowerment is a really key ingredient to establishing the success of, of these roles. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a, a final question, a forecasting question. 
uh, that I like to do. So if we're talking about not just healthcare, but equitable healthcare, um, the capacity to identify and reach populations who not just now, but have been historically uh, ignored uh, in healthcare or underserved at least. Um, I'm going to give you 10 years and, yeah. and the consideration of your role and mm -hmm. uh, Google's influence as a, as a global company and, and as a media company, um, what do you think uh, things will look like uh, for equitable healthcare 10 years from now? Where do you think we'll be? Yeah, so I'm going to put on an optimistic lens um, because for, for many cases, we've seen, you know, health disparity statistics that are that have been persistent. But I do think that there are um, components um, that are present now that hopefully will change the future. So putting on an optimistic lens, I would say, you know, 10 years from now, there's probably um, two, two or so um, criteria that I, I would like to see and, and from a measurement aspect. I think that there are some very key health disparity statistics that have stayed persistent for a very long time. Infant mortality, um, um, black maternal mortality. Um, and though you have a range of health disparity statistics to measure, you know, somehow the concept of, you know, um, we're, how we're taking care of um, infants and mothers seem to, the, to be at the core of public health. Um, and have always been in the core of public health. So I want to I want to um, aspire for a 10, 10 year goal where we see um, both the measurements, the track measurements of infant and maternal mortality um, having improved for the overall population, but also the gaps um, have um, finally narrowed and disappeared. Um, and within that, and our role within that would be we have. Um, helped mothers um, and uh, parents and um, and all of the folks within that spectrum, and, uh, doctors, uh, nurses, um, um, other allied healthcare professionals, um, all have um, uh, been sharing and integrating information about um, how you prevent um, low birth weight, um, very low birth weight, and all the risk factors that go into infant mortality. We've shared that information away as empowered communities. That's our role, <clears throat> and and the communities have been able to act in that. And then the broader role has to do with um, you know um, access, where we, where we where the the overall healthcare ecosystem has opened up access, um, has dealt with issues around bias, um, and have been incorporating cultural competent care. So honestly, David, I I my help my ten year hope is that. Um, we're in a better place with um, some of those key metrics um, um, in general. Um, um, and I think, I think we can do it. Um, it just takes concerted degree of effort. That's Dr. Garth Graham, Managing Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health at Google, YouTube, and Google Health. Sign up for Quality Talks 2023 to hear him, meet him, and be inspired by him. Go right now to qualitytalks.org. Next up, we have another doctor of many hats. Dr. Aaron Neinstein is a healthcare leader at the University of California, San Francisco, aka UCSF. He's an endocrinologist specializing in diabetes care, but he's also a technology guru, trying just about everything he can think of to move IT and AI, artificial intelligence, into the healthcare ecosystem. Dr. Neinstein is vice president of digital health for UCSF Health. He's associate professor in the UCSF Division of Endocrinology, and he's senior director at the UCSF Center for Digital Health Innovation, 
also known as CDHI. He's an expert in digitalization, especially in developing solutions for converting electronic health records into digital data. He works with the feds to develop interoperability policy. He also co-founded Tidepool, a nonprofit that creates open source software to empower people with diabetes. Dr. Neinstein was one of the first inductees as a fellow of the American Medical Informatics Association, the FAMIA. He's a member of HITECH, the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee, and we've had guests before with HITECH. And he's the best person to explain how digitalization isn't really about tech at all. Digital transformation is actually has very little to do with technology. It's about using the technology uh, to become a more data-driven and a more customer-centric organization. And so really, it's all about culture, about how you build teams, about what you, uh, how you make decisions about what projects to work on as a company, about how you think about serving your customers, about how you, you use uh, data and information that you're gathering uh, to inform decision-making. So it's, it's really all about culture, uh, about data literacy, about types of talent and the workforce that you have. So you know, it's not very common for health systems to have designers or data scientists or product managers. And when you're moving into a digital transformation stage, you need to be thinking about those types of, of talents and skill sets within your organization. So yeah, the transformation phase has very little to do with tech and everything to do with culture. So tell us about um, your work with uh, UCSF. And, and this is also for our listeners who might be doing work that's similar to yours, but they don't have a lab or the research lab they have hasn't been changed or upgraded in order to really focus on digitalization. So first of all, the CDHI, what's the origin of it? Uh, how does it operate? Um, and like you were just saying, what not what kinds of, of, of people who are there, but what are the, the, the titles and the uh, sort of the crew members that you have working there? Our Center for Digital Health Innovation, we started actually about 10 years ago coming out of our electronic health record system implementation with the realization that healthcare, you know, again, that digitization was the first step, but that as we were striving for delivering better patient experience, better care outcomes, that we needed to, to think differently uh, and do more around being uh, customer-centric, uh, about using data, about thinking about AI, data science, and automation, uh, and about learning in, in uh, more rapid cycles within our organization. And so the team that we've built really is focused around those areas. So product management, design, uh, data science, uh, integrations uh, to uh, integrate other software with our electronic health record. Um, and, and really the focus is a lot on culture and how... Um, you know, traditionally in healthcare organizations, we do sort of annual planning and we think about uh, funding a project and uh, that project has a, a beginning and an end. And we, you know, tend to think that we know exactly what the outcomes are going to be from that project. And the modern world is very unpredictable. And when we're trying to improve uh, patient experience, 
you don't always know exactly what's going to happen or what people's needs are. And, and so the, the shift in, in culture and approach is to one of a little bit more experimentation uh, and iteration. So doing uh, having our design team do user research uh, with patients, so not us making an assumption about what our patients need or we're building for what physicians need, but actually going out and meeting with a diverse group uh, of our patients and stakeholders, designing you know prototypes and testing prototypes with them, uh, building and and deploying a new uh, experience for our patients, and then using that initial deployment to learn, see what people like and what they don't like, how they're using it, whether it's improving uh, the outcomes that we're hoping for, and and then just iterating from there and. Uh, and it's a very different uh, approach than sort of annual planning, you know, that uh, approaches the world through a lens of kind of certainty. Uh, this is making the assumption that we are uncertain and that we don't know exactly how things are going to go and uh, adapting to that. So where are we in terms of integrating IT, which is the most general thing I could say, but with health IT, where are we in the United States today as far as creating a digital world for healthcare, integrating digital services uh, into the ecosystem? Uh, what progress have we made so far? The technology systems, rather than supporting and augmenting the doctor-patient relationship, have tended to come uh, in between and interfere in the relationship. So doctors are sitting at the keyboard typing uh, with their back to the patient in the exam room. Um, patients feel like they're not being listened to. Again, with all of this administrative burden and overhead, doctors are having to spend more time uh, you know, completing prior authorization paperwork than uh, doing what they love to do, which is, is talking with their patients and supporting their patients. And so technology has done more to interfere with the relationship rather than support uh, the relationship. Thankfully, through a lot of work through HHS and the Office of the National Coordinator uh, for Health IT and, and implementation of the 21st Century Cures Act, uh, there has been a lot of progress in moving health information between hospital systems of allowing patients access to their uh, medical records and to their test results, uh, but there's still more work to do there, and and that people expect their health data to kind of flow. You know, if your primary care doctor is in one place and your specialists are somewhere else, and you're getting your labs drawn in a third place, people expect that information to move around, uh, and and there's more work to do uh, in, in making that happen. So. Uh, and then I think when you think about the ultimate outcomes that we want from healthcare, so we want quality, we want lower cost, we want a higher quality experience, uh, and we want a reduction in disparities. Technology has the ability to help us do those things, to deliver care more efficiently, to prevent harm and improve quality by uh providing decision support and reminders to care teams to deliver a better patient experience, uh, the way that we interact in our consumer lives with uh, the apps that are on our phone and that are so easy to use. Um, and by making healthcare more accessible and more affordable uh, and more personalized for 
uh, all of the different demographics that we serve. And, and we haven't really succeeded yet in using technology to advance those goals. Um, on that last point, I think people often think uh, about health equity and reducing disparities. And there's a lot of talk about the digital divide and, and how technology could be making things worse. And I think it's really important to remember uh, the difference between equality and equity. So equality is giving everyone the same thing. And in some ways, that's what we've done. Uh, you know, we, we all have patient portals. Everyone has the same thing. But equity means uh, serving the individual needs of individual people. And so technology can allow us to provide personalized and more adaptive experiences for different people's needs. So that could be anything from uh, different languages to um, different levels of education, to different cultural backgrounds, um, to different accessibility needs and requirements, you know, people with either hearing impairments or visual impairments. Uh, technology can, can help us advance health equity uh, and deliver care in the way that people need rather than one size fits all. And so I think that's another huge opportunity um, that uh, we have not yet advanced with electronic health records. So for digitalization, so tell me a little bit first about, um, well, we were just talking about telehealth, remote care, monitoring. Um, tell me about telehealth policy in the U.S. and uh, any thoughts as to uh, how IT should be handled. Yeah, we're, we're facing a critical moment when it comes to telehealth policy in the United States. We saw during the pandemic how valuable telehealth could be to continue to provide access to care, uh, both for people, you know, it's often thought that it's valuable just for people in rural areas, but it's also valuable for people in urban areas. You know, coming into the doctor's office can be a major imposition in terms of cost, having to take off work, pay for parking, spend a few hours, uh, you know, finding childcare, and giving people the opportunity to do that remotely uh, can can potentially be a, a driver of access um, and and equity. Um, patients also value it, so it has been both valuable uh, in terms of access to care and valued by patients. The challenge is that there are serious questions right now um, related to reimbursement and whether in many states, whether uh, visits via telehealth uh, are considered equivalent to an in-office visit. Uh, we're also seeing uh, restrictions return related to practicing across state lines. So if your patient is in another state, uh, whether or not you're able to provide telehealth care across state lines. Having limitations around that uh, can be a burden. You think about mental health care. So, you know, 70%, 80% of mental health care is still delivered via telehealth. Um, does it really matter if that professional is in the same state uh, as you are, if, if it's happening over video? I'm thinking of large providers that have... Uh policies in multiple states simultaneously. So if they decide they want to have not customer care, but something similar to that, that's operating out of one office in one part of their territory, uh, is there going to be a problem with the people working out of that office, helping to advise people in any direction in other states? It's one company. They are present in six different states. 
why would that be a, a problem? L let me ask you also about um, um, something like HIPAA and data privacy, which everybody is worried about cyber corruption. So when it comes to cyber corruption idea of uh, aspects of healthcare, uh, what are your thoughts on that? So HIPAA needs a refresh. I mean, HIPAA was a very important piece of policy um, but it is decades old and was created before we had electronic health records, before the rise really of the internet and consumer mobile apps, before the rise of social media. And so I think one of the things people don't realize is that HIPAA only really applies to what's called covered entities and their business associates. So that is organizations or entities who are uh, either treating patients involved in payment or operation. So that means hospitals and clinics, that means insurance companies, that means uh, technology companies like our, our electronic health records companies. Those are HIPAA covered entities. But when you search on Google, when you search on Amazon and purchase products, uh, when you download an app, uh, when you're a woman and you download an app to do um uh, period tracking, those activities and those data are not covered by HIPAA because those are those are not involved in the treatment, payment, or operations of healthcare. And so I think there is really a need to think more holistically about people's healthcare information across both the consumer space and the traditional covered space uh, and apply privacy policies that are more universal. Um, fortunately, this is a very bipartisan issue. There are some early uh, potential pieces of legislation that are kind of making their way forward. This issue has a lot of visibility. And so I do think there will be progress here, but but we do need significant uh, reform around privacy policy. The possibility of cyber corruption and identity theft, these are present. These are real problems. And there are solutions that are uh, possible out there. Let, I want to ask you for your thoughts about chat GPT, um, which if our listeners haven't heard of it, uh, feel free. I'm not putting a link. I'm not putting a link for it here, but feel free to go ahead and look it up and even try it out uh, and, and and see what it does. But um, there are good things about it and there are uh, difficult things about it that have all come up just in the last couple of weeks. There are people who uh, are using chat GPT as an easy resource for information, topical information without having to go in depth. Uh, and then on the other side, there are people who are using it when they have reports that they have to write and they simply use chat GPT, put in a, a request, write me this report. It writes the report, they hand it in. And it's not exactly plagiarism, but it's not exactly being honest about it. So tell me about the positive ways in which AI in this sense, chat GPT and similar software hardware would be able to be incorporated uh, into improving healthcare and healthcare delivery. It's a fascinating moment in time. And, and I first want to start by saying there are, there are very real risks and concerns here, right? So um, the accuracy of information the propagation of, of bias, you know, as these systems are trained on large sources of data, what are the biases inherent in that data? Uh, our ability to inspect, you know, the, sort of the transparency of how these algorithms are, are coming to the recommendations that they're making. Um, 
So there are some very real uh, risks and concerns that we need to be thinking about. Uh, on the other hand, there are some very exciting opportunities. So as I was mentioning earlier, uh, the administrative burden on, on providers and care teams right now is extremely high. And what, what GPT and, and other large language models bring as an opportunity is to essentially have a, a army of trained assistants um, to support your work. So if I'm sitting down with, if you're my patient, we're sitting down together, um, we can have one of these assistants listening to our conversation and doing my clinical documentation for me. It can be automatically sending prescriptions into the pharmacy as we're just discussing them. It can be automatically filling in the prior authorization paperwork and sending that off to the insurance company. It can be filling in the school forms uh, that, uh, that your child needs while we're sitting there talking about it. Um, it can be setting a reminder up for a week later. As Again, as we're just talking about it, it can automatically be setting up a reminder to check in with you and ask you uh, how you're doing with that new medication, if you're having any side effects, um, if you've had your, your blood drawn um, to check in on, on the labs to see how things are going. And so all of these sort of digital agents or bots um, can be supporting uh, and automating and, and really augmenting what we are able to do with our current staffing uh, and care teams. And so I think that's very exciting. Uh, it can also support us in diagnostic uh, and decision-making. So doctors are very busy. There's information scattered everywhere in the medical chart. Um, we may, you know, uh, have ways that we want to, you know, for a particular medical condition, I'll use osteoporosis as an example. There may be certain sets of questions that need to be asked. There might be uh, certain tests that need to be drawn. And it's probably true that doctors are not 100% perfect about asking all of those questions and ordering all of those tests every time. Well, GPT could be kind of keeping an eye on us and supporting us in reminding us to ask those questions or reminding us to order those tests or reminding us of potential diagnoses that we might not be thinking of or that we might be missing. So there's definitely an element to diagnostic support and decision support. There's also an incredible opportunity for democratization of health information to, to people. So uh, there's opportunity for people to not necessarily even need the medical system or their doctors to answer questions uh, for them. And, and this is the place both of great opportunity and great risk, right? If the information that people are getting uh, is inaccurate, then that's obviously a huge problem. But if, if this is a way of providing access to information to more people at a lower cost and with less friction, than uh, currently exists in the healthcare system, then I, I think that's that's a great uh, that's a great thing as well. So I, I think lots of opportunities around efficiency, improving quality, improving decision support, hopefully uh, allowing doctors and patients to just talk to each other and, and get technology out of the way, um, and in democratizing health information uh, to a broader set of people. 
Senior Director of the UCSF Center for Digital Health Innovation, Dr. Aaron Neinstein. Once again, I invite you to pick his brain on May 3rd, as Dr. Neinstein will be a member of our exclusive group of presenters at NCQA's 2023 Quality Talks event. Sign up today to be with us in person in DC, or to watch remotely on our live stream. There's that too. Head to qualitytalks.org to register now. Time again now for our Fast Facts segment. Here we provide some important information for you to use and spread around. The month of April is also Alcohol Awareness Month in the United States. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, or NIAAA, is a division of the NIH with amazing resources regarding alcohol abuse and recovery. I'd like to share some information now from their free booklet, Rethinking Drinking, Alcohol and Your Health. And I'll throw in a link for the download page for the booklet into this uh, episode's description. Here is the NIAAA's definition of heavy drinking. For men, it's five or more drinks in a day, or more than 14 in a week. For women, it's more than three a day, or more than seven per week. The harms of alcohol misuse are numerous. Recent numbers on alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. indicate that alcohol was involved in the following, about 29% of all motor vehicle fatalities involved alcohol misuse, about 30% of suicides involved alcohol, about 40% of all fatal burns were alcohol-related, about 50% of drownings, 50% of homicides, and about 65% of all fatal falls were alcohol-related. On top of these, alcohol misuse increases the risk of liver disease, cardiovascular disease, and even cancers that could appear anywhere throughout the entire digestive system. Now, I know many of our listeners are aware of these stats and the dangers. You're probably familiar with resources available for those seeking help, too. So let me provide a few questions from the NIAAA to consider whether you or someone you know might have a drinking problem. Questions include these. Have you ever wanted a drink so much that you couldn't think of anything else? Has your drinking interfered with your job or family obligations? When someone invites you to do something fun, do you ever say no because you realize you'd rather be drinking? And if you go without a drink, do you experience symptoms of withdrawal? So these are all good food for thought. If you're in crisis or you know someone in crisis, here's what you can do. You can contact SAMHSA. That's the HHS Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration using their national helpline. You can get there by texting 988 or calling 1-800-662-HELP from anywhere in the United States or go visit their website for the National Helpline. I'll put a link for it in the description here. NCQA has a HEDIS measure addressing alcohol misuse. Our unhealthy alcohol use screening and follow-up measure addresses the percentage of health plan members who were screened for unhealthy alcohol use, and then the percentage of those members who tested positive in screenings and then received counseling and or other follow-up care within two months of the positive screen. So please stay healthy and stay safe. Well, we're down to the wire now, folks. It's almost time for Quality Talks 2023. 
May 3rd in Washington, D.C., the Capitol Hilton Hotel will see a wealth of inspiring speakers all on the same stage, each with only 15 minutes to inspire you to action. And after they speak, each block of speakers goes to their own speaker salon, where you can meet them to discuss how health equity, digitalization, and hospital at home intersect. Quality talks will be live streamed, but trust me, if you can be there in person by any means, you should try. Seating is limited, so register now. For more information or to view the speaker presentations from past years, go to qualitytalks.org. You won't want to miss it. Now, Quality Talks is an incredible opportunity, but it's only one day. Join us in October in Orlando, Florida for our annual, second annual Health Innovation Summit. For three days, beginning October 23rd, 2023, this will be the place to connect with quality and care delivery innovators. Enjoy our speakers, our panels, training sessions, and exhibit showcase floor. And I'm going to be there in the podcast booth, so come on by for an interview. Registration is open now. Go to NCQA Summit. That's one word, NCQASUMMIT.com right now for more. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we now ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Well, if you're coming up empty for something to say, and here's our question for this episode. If you were in the room with any world leaders, what would you tell them about your work in healthcare? Think about it, and then tell us about it. And, you know, if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on the show, maybe you want to be that guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write inside healthcare, those words, in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. Well, that's it for episode 104 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks again for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate and share. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us, as many often do, on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show, whether you stream it, either way, if you find us, please follow us, make us your favorite, and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's important work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listeners, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.